Praised be Jesus Christ, now and forever. And peace be with you on this spring evening, uh, more than two-thirds of the way through Eastertide, Paschaltide, the season of Easter. It's amazing the way the time is flying. I was looking at a calendar this morning, and I was shocked to realize that next Thursday is the Feast of the Ascension, which means that we're almost to the end now of Easter, which it seems like we just celebrated Easter like last week or something to me. Uh, but we're almost to the end, and then after Ascension becomes, of course, the great Feast of Pentecost, which um, in all the, the readings of church at Masses and at in the Divine Office and so forth, all the readings now are pointing us toward Pentecost. We're hearing a lot more and more about the coming of the Holy Spirit, about the Lord um, going away from us in order to send us the Advocate, the Paraclete, who will come to teach us all things. So it's a very exciting time of the year. Um, the, the, the great solemn season of rejoicing over the resurrection is coming to a close, but that doesn't mean that our Easter joy, our Paschal joy, is, uh, is waning, or at least it shouldn't be. Rather, uh, the Lord is leading us on, like C.S. Lewis says, further up and further in, further into the great mystery. And uh, he's promising to send us his Holy Spirit, which is uh, an even greater gift, you know? We go from grace to grace, gift to gift, glory to glory. So I'm excited. Uh, this time of year is, is a beautiful, beautiful time. And um, I didn't record a podcast last Friday. Sorry about that. So I'm a week behind. Last week was my finals week. I had all my exams. Uh, I passed all of them. <laughs> Praise God. And uh, it was actually just about the most peaceful finals week I think I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, in the midst of these really extraordinary circumstances, um, being away from the seminary, being deprived of, you know, the usual resources that I have. I didn't have access to the library. Um, obviously, I mean, I haven't been able to go to mass other than online by live streaming. Um, I was on my own. I wasn't able to study in groups with any of my brothers as we often do study groups. But, oh, and then um, here at my mom's house during finals week, we were having new floor put in. <laughs> so because it was going to be super noisy, I went out to stay with my grandmother for the course of the week while I was doing my exams to have a quieter place. Suffice to say, uh, Theology 2 is now in the books. And actually this year, which is unusual, I had more work to do uh, after finals week was over, but that was really a mercy. One of my professors, he had uh, two papers assigned for us to finish. Well, it was for canon law. One was a case study and one was a, a book review on a book about canon law, <laughs> which for me was uh, that tome about medieval canon law I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I was slogging my way through. And so... Um, with special permission from the academic dean, this professor extended the deadline for us uh, a week or so out past the end of finals, which was a huge mercy, actually, because it meant that, well, our finals week could be a bit, of, a bit more stress-free <laughs> than otherwise would have been possible if we were racing to finish those papers as well as prepare for our exams. So last week, I was getting those Oh, well, actually, what am I thinking? Last week was the exams. This week, I was getting the papers done. I finished both my papers yesterday. 
got them turned in. And uh, now I'm proofreading <laughs> some of my classmates' papers, kind of last minute, but um, I'm gonna be finishing those up tonight, meet with them tomorrow over video conferencing to give my feedback. They'll turn theirs in, and then finally, this very strange academic year will be, I've come to a close. And so, um, yeah, the times are changing. We've got a limited reopening of masses here in Oregon. Very limited, I should add. Here in Southern Oregon, we're not even seeing any opening so far, although I think it's around the corner. But elsewhere in the state, with the Archbishop's permission, pastors are beginning to celebrate masses for small groups of congregants, um, less than 25 people. And they have to follow very strict guidelines. For example, the priest wears a mask while distributing Holy Communion. Um, one friend of mine joked that the uh, big liturgical supply companies are going to start churning out masks in all the liturgical colors, you know, <laughs> in case this goes through the year so priests can match the vestments with their masks. But uh, for doing that, parishes have to have sanitation crews so they can go in there and after each gathering, make sure that everything is sanitized for the next group. You have to sign up in advance, um, which is designed to keep the numbers under 25, you know, and also to provide for easier contact tracing. So if anyone becomes infected, then the parish can work with the state or county government to help uh, inform the others that they were exposed, and so on. So you're getting the picture. Um, by no means are we back to normal. And who knows how many months it might be before we really get back to normal. Pray God that it is coming, at least. But uh, for me, I kind of feel like I'm on the verge of getting back to, if not normalcy, uh, I don't know, at least kind of getting back to real life. Do you know what I mean? I feel like these months at home have been kind of uh, an ongoing dream. I won't say a nightmare, but definitely they have kind of a feeling of unreality about them. And a big part of that for me is that I haven't been able to go to Holy Mass. And I felt so disconnected from the church in a, in a strange way, like I never have in my life since I've been Catholic. Um, yeah, so the, the good news for me, and this is news, I haven't shared with you yet because uh, I didn't record last week. But um, you might remember I was scheduled to go on this 30-day retreat in June in Tallahassee, Florida. I was pretty much assuming the retreat was going to be canceled. Um, hadn't heard anything final yet, but because of the state of the world, and especially the state of Florida, um, I was just presuming that it would only be a matter of time before they let us know that the retreat was off. Um, what I hadn't considered was the possibility that they might hold the retreat online, which in fact they announced recently that they are going to do. And so at first, I had kind of mixed feelings about it. Um, you know, I've been on enough retreats uh, to recognize the immense challenge that this would pose to the retreat directors and the participants. It would be difficult. I mean, a retreat isn't like an online class, you know. 
for one thing, it's 24-7. <laughs> I mean, you have talks at discrete times, you have prayer periods at discrete times, or meetings with the directors and so on. But the retreat atmosphere is supposed to be immersive. And all the more so for a 30-day retreat. You don't just dip in and out of it like you do an online class. It's, it's a, a lifestyle that you live for a period of time where the Lord's inviting you to come away and to be with Him in a particular way. And so I was thinking, how is that going to work online? When they called me, they said, you know, make sure you have a, a place that's going to be quiet and safe and peaceful where you can just be for the month and you can just rest and have no demands other than the retreat itself so you can enter into it. And I thought, where am I going to find that? <laughs> I'm here at home, my mom's house actually. And uh, I mean, she's been very good about, you know, giving me space and time for my prayer, for my classes, my study, and all of that. But the fact is, it's her house, and it's a small house, and there's constantly noise, there's chatter, there's interruptions, there's distractions, there's work that needs to be done. While I'm here, I'm doing the shopping, I'm doing all the cooking, I'm doing, you know. So it's, it's not an atmosphere that's conducive to entering into a spiritual retreat. And a fortiori, all the more so, when you realize this is a, a healing retreat for priests and seminarians. Um, not just a run-of-the-mill silent retreat where we're meditating on the Gospels or what have you, but this is a retreat where we're meant to be able to really open our hearts and be emotionally vulnerable and share of ourselves uh, in a profound way so that the Holy Spirit can enter into us and heal us in a profound way. Um, so that was my that was my main concern when I heard and I got this voicemail from the JP2 Healing Institute. I thought, how is this ever going to work for me? I'm going to have to drop out. There's no way I can do it. Well, of course, you know, maybe you know, uh, if you know me or you're similar yourself. But the way my mind works when I come into a situation like this is I just start way over preparing and over planning. And so I started thinking of all the possibilities and the potential places I could go in order to participate in the retreat, what it might look like and what I have to do. And I was coming up with all these possibilities. Well, I spoke with my vocation director and uh, just proposed a couple of the more plausible ones <laughs> that I thought of. And he was really good. He said, take some time to pray about it. So we did. And finally we agreed the very best thing for me to do would be in order to participate, which I, I want to do, would be to go back to St. Patrick's for the month of June. And as soon as the decision was made, I felt so at peace uh, and overjoyed at the thought of it. Because going back to St. Patrick's means I'll be able to participate every day in daily Mass. A private Mass with a priest. Um, and at St. Pat's, of course, I'll continue to be uh, in quarantine for the most part, you know. Uh, I'll be, I mean, you know, it'll just be sort of like a regular retreat in that regard, uh, remaining inside <laughs> and not venturing out a whole lot. Um, we have our wonderful sisters there, the Oblate Sisters uh, of Jesus, the High Priest, who are continuing to prepare meals. Apparently they're leaving them out for the priests to, to just come and pick up and take back to their rooms for, you know, social distancing reasons. So I'll be able to just uh, kind of hop in and 
pretty much be on my own in silence and solitude, but I'll be in my own room, my normal room, and uh, in a familiar place with access to mass, confession, spiritual direction, uh, and of course, the, the beautiful graces in particular of this retreat. So I couldn't be happier. I really couldn't be happier. Of course, there's a small risk, you know, because I, it does require me to travel across state lines back to the Bay Area. But the Bay Area is, from all that I've read, they're controlling this thing pretty well. Um, the number of cases is starting to decline there. Um, obviously not so low as here, in rural Southern Oregon, where we have not been hit hard at all. Uh, the Bay Area is much, much worse. But they're keeping things under control. I see they're requiring masks for anyone outside for any reason. They're being very strict with the shelter in place and all that. So, you know, and I'll be in the seminary almost the whole time anyway. And I told my vocation director, I can get down there in eight hours, uh, give or take, and I can just drive down in one day, hardly leave my car. <laughs> so it should be fine. And um, I really feel that the Lord is inviting me to this 30-day retreat as kind of the capstone, if you will, of this beautiful season of healing and of deep interior growth that he's been bringing about in me just in the last year or so. Um, yeah, if I wanted to put dates on it, I'd say it really began last summer when I was in Rome for the Rome experience. I mean, my whole, you know, this is just a chapter. Our whole lives are a narrative of healing and growth. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus, and to be his intimate friend, is we're becoming more and more like him. We're being healed from our selfishness, our egoism, our various wounds, and uh, growing into maturity, into the full stature of Christ, like St. Paul says. But it happens in stages, to be sure. And for me, I feel like I've been in more or less a continual stage or chapter, act of growth, beginning last summer when I was in Rome, and just continuing ever since. Um, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been an incredible year. And uh, if, if you hear some noises, it's because I'm walking by a house where some people are watching a movie with the door open. <laughs> So don't worry, I'm not walking through like gang territory or something <laughs> here in Roseburg, Oregon. <laughs> but uh, I, I just, I have a sense, and you never want to go into these retreats with expectations, because the Lord is always much bigger than uh, whatever we can conceive or imagine. But I am, I am just feeling that this is going to be um, kind of the, you know, cap, the, uh, the uh, culminating grace of this season of immense graces, which has been almost a year in the making. Just the other day, as I was spending my time in prayer, and I don't want to get too much into this, but I was just almost brought to tears recognizing, because I'm, I'm back here at home, and you know how it is when you're back at the place you grew up. Um, there's a lot of nostalgia, a lot of memories come flooding back that you don't normally think about. And just thinking about, you know, the last time I lived here, uh, for any real length of time, uh, was you know, before I entered seminary, really. Um, and uh, the Lord has brought about such immense changes in my heart. You know, it's, it's, it's real. The work that grace brings about on us is real. Transforming our desires, 
and fulfilling them. That's the two-part work of grace. God first, and when we invite Him into our hearts, he, he begins to transform our desires so that we, we begin to really desire Him. And then He fulfills our desires by giving Himself to us. He never ceases. He, he walks with us along the way. He's very patient. But He's relentless. <laughs> and as long as we continue inviting Him in, He continues His work transforming all the desires of our hearts and revealing to us that all those desires were always about Him anyway. Nothing we desire is separate from God. Everything is contained within Him and His own gift of self to us. But anyway, I'm going kind of off the deep end here. Uh, <laughs> and it would be better suited for the theology segment anyway. All of that to say, I will be going back to St. Patrick's for the month of June, and I'm very happy about it. Then, uh, as you know, I'll be starting my pastoral year in August up in Portland, so that leaves July, and I think most likely I'll be back here in Roseburg uh, in July as well. Um, it's not formally confirmed yet, but can't think of anywhere else I would probably go, except maybe if I stayed in California. So I think most likely I'll be back here and uh, have a little time for rest and vacation. All of this, of course, um, conditional on the Lord's will, <laughs> which is for our delight and for our salvation. So enough about that. Those are uh, my, my upcoming plans and expectations, hopes. Um, since the school year ended, I've been doing a little bit of reading, so let's talk just a little bit about Shakespeare. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. So when I say a little bit, I really do just mean a little bit. The week before finals, I just crushed a ton of plays. Since then, it's been a bit slower. Uh, I did finish The Rape of Lucrece, which, um, you know, it's a, it's a obviously very difficult poem. Uh, it's a lengthy, a lengthy narrative poem. It was really the first of Shakespeare's poetry that I've read, um, at least his long poetry. Um, I still haven't read Venus and Adonis. That's the last one I have to go back and catch up on when I have a bit of time. But, yeah, The Rape of Lucrece. You know, what I found most striking about this, I mean, obviously the subject matter um, is, very, is very disturbing, difficult stuff. But what was very striking is the, the way that Shakespeare so subtly and powerfully portrays the psychology of the characters, both Tarkin and Lucrece. Tarkin, the emperor, and Lucrece, this poor woman whom he catches unawares in the middle of the night. And Shakespeare, you know, he really, he, he does an excellent, excellent job of uh, show, don't tell. <laughs> it's difficult to do, especially in, in, a, in a poem like this. 
I think, because of the form. But, uh, and I don't have the texture in front of me, so I can't cite any examples. I'm just kind of talking off the cuff, uh, not walking. But that's, that's what I was struck by. I was struck by his, his, his careful characterization of especially these two main characters, Tarkin and Lucrece. And um, you, you really feel that you can get inside of their heads, the both of them, both of them. Uh, Lucrece, on the one hand, I mean, she is, she, well, f- for one thing, she's overjoyed to hear that her husband is okay. She's pressing Tarkin for news about him. And you can, you can tell that she's a simple soul. And um, you know, Tarkin kind of calls her naive. Uh, or maybe that's Shakespeare editorializing, I'm not sure. But she's, she's a simple soul. Uh, she's, you know, she's chaste. And she's deeply in love. And she's kind of this, uh, she's a model of a holy virgin, you know. And then on the other hand, you have Tarkin. And um, Shakespeare portrays so clearly kind of the war between reason and passion. This is one of the best works I think I've ever read, displaying the, the inner shape of that battle that I think we all know too well between reason and passion. Because he is conflicted. He knows that he's contemplating committing a very, very grave sin. And he's really, he's under no illusions about it. But he begins to rationalize to himself and to convince himself, saying, well, passion's force is too strong. I must cede. He's even, and this is, this is grotesque, and in our day and age especially, we're quite rightly, very repulsed by it. But he begins to blame Lucrece. And he's saying, you know, she's a damnable villain because she's ensnared him with her beauty and so addled his mind that he, he reason no longer has any sway over him. He has to follow his unbridled passions to the bitter end. So it's interesting. I'm not saying that's correct at all. Um, you know, as, as rational beings, rational creatures. In a way, you could say the very definition of sin is to do what's irrational. And uh, I don't mean to give sin too much of kind of a Vulcan, you know, Spock uh, <laughs> explanation. But St. Thomas Aquinas says as much. He says sin is what is opposed to our human nature, which is rational. So that which is irrational I mean, you can't say everything irrational is sin, but sin certainly is always irrational, right? And so I just found it, I found it very compelling how Shakespeare paints Tarkin as falling into the control, the grip of his passions, and how he is a willing participant in that, even though he's rationalizing to himself and kind of trying to explain, no, passion's overpowered reason. But as he's saying that he's, he's rationalizing it, he's reasoning about it, he's, he's trying to give himself permission, you know, to act out. Another interesting thing I remember about that poem, by the way, is how Shakespeare kind of portrays the world itself as opposing Tarkin, as he's, you know, oh, doggy as he's uh, walking 
you know, from his room to Lucrece's chambers, and he has to go outside. And there's these various obstacles he comes upon, which are very small. I forget what they are, but it's like, uh, you know, a stone he steps on that makes him stumble, or a spider's web he walks through that clings to his face or something, or, uh, I don't know, a frog ribbiting, <laughs> a dog barking, <laughs> something like that. Um, and Shakespeare, or the narrator of the poem, makes the point, something like that Tarkin is, is blind or deaf to nature's own entreaties, that he turn back from his wicked way and return to his own bed. I thought that was very interesting. Because of course, you know, if we expand on this, uh, this uh, definition of sin as irrational, if we keep tugging the thread, we find that what irrational really means is opposed to nature, opposed to the created order which God has written into creation from all eternity. Not only human nature, but God is, you know, the creator of all. And the natural law is God's own ordering of his universe, which is written into his design. Everything acts by nature according to God's will, because he made it as he wishes it to be. Now, because of original sin, there's this kind of disorder introduced deeply into creation, like a discordant note which throws off the whole symphony, right? So the whole world fell with man in a certain sense, and the whole world is being redeemed again by Christ as we hurtle on toward the final resurrection and the glorious second coming. In the meantime, we're living in the already but not yet that we've talked about so often. But the point is, sin as irrational behavior is not just opposed to man's nature, it's opposed to all of nature. And so Shakespeare portrays in this beautiful way the very world itself, the plants and the animals and the insects and whatever, as in some way like following God's design, trying to stop Tarkin from doing this evil deed, trying to turn him back, to call him back to himself. Don't be like that. <laughs> be like you're supposed to be. Follow the divine order, just as we do. I thought it was an interesting point. Um, and it's just a, a brief couple of lines, you know, in this, this lengthy poem. I do recommend it. Um, it's challenging, but as I, as I think I've made pretty clear, uh, it's fascinating. And I think it's a useful study of kind of the human psyche, the human condition. Also, on a lighter note, I read 80 of Shakespeare's sonnets uh, <laughs> earlier this week and last week. Uh, and um, I've read some of his sonnets before. I, I took at least one class exclusively on Shakespeare in college, part of my literature major. Um, and we read a number of his sonnets. So I had a, a general sense for kind of, you know, what he's... What he, what he would be writing about. 
The interesting thing about the sonnets, especially the early sonnets, is Shakespeare's focus on immortality. If, you, if you've read any of them, you know what I mean. He's talking to his, well, his beloved, whoever it may be, expounding on this person's beauty and their myriad wonderful qualities. And he's especially exhorting them. I'll say him, because I think this is his friend, actually, in the early sonnets. He's exhorting him to find a wife so that uh, the world will not be deprived of all of his wonderful qualities when he dies, but they will live on in his children. And then Shakespeare, and this is something that critics are always fighting over, who is he talking to in each sonnet? Seems like maybe the subject shifts. Um, so maybe it's his friend, maybe it's his beloved, who knows who it is. But then he, he starts addressing somebody and saying that their beauty will live on in his poems, which will be read for generations, you know, and long after he and all of them have all turned to dust, that people will read his words and know of the beauty of his beloved. And that's a beautiful sentiment. Uh, it speaks to, I mean, it's, it's, it's sentimental in a certain way. And there might be a little note of pride there. <laughs> Shakespeare saying, you know, hey, my writing is good enough. People are going to be reading it thousands of years hence. But you know what? He's right. We are. We don't even know who he's writing to, but we're still reading these sonnets. And uh, he leaves it up to our imaginations, you know, to populate, um, to populate his words, which evoke the beauties of his beloved. He leaves it up to us to kind of color in the lines uh, and imagine what this person would be like. So it's beautiful. It speaks to the power of art and, uh, and the, power, the power of love to endure even beyond the lives of the lovers themselves. Um, yeah, and that's about all I'll say about that, I think. I'm also now reading Othello which is a wonderful, wonderful play of intrigue and high drama. I'll speak more about it next week once I've finished it. But I will say this. I read an article recently which says that Iago, who you may know, is one of the main characters in Othello, that Iago is Shakespeare's greatest villain. And when I read it, I mean, I sort of, I don't know, I took it on faith. I guess, because this author was a, a great Shakespearean scholar. Oh, there's the dog again. But uh, I think at the time, though, I was reading Titus Andronicus, or maybe I had just finished it. And I remember thinking, has this guy ever read Titus Andronicus? Because who could be, who, who could be a greater villain than, ah, uh, what's his name? The, the Moor, who's... Um, Oh, gosh, I can't think of who that, that person is anymore. Um, the one who is kind of pulling all the strings in Titus Andronicus, and, you know, has... Uh... Oh, gosh. No, it's not the servant. It's the, it's, the, it's the barbarian woman who becomes the queen. Gosh, what's her name? Ah, oh, it's totally escaping me. But anyway, yeah, because Titus has her son killed in front of her. And then she, yeah, and her servant also, 
whose name I also forget, <laughs> exact their revenge on Titus and his whole family. But that play, it has to be admitted, that play has a lot of, not moral ambiguity, I won't say that, but um, you, it, everyone in that play is kind of a villain. <laughs> there's, not mu there's not moral ambiguity, there's a lot of moral evil, but you just don't have anyone who's truly innocent. It's hard to find a character to really root for in that play. I guess Titus Andronicus' daughter is really innocent, and she suffers maybe the worst, uh, you know, the worst crimes of anyone in that play. So, but yes, kind of everyone in that play is a villain. And so far what I've seen in Othello is Othello, who's ostensibly the main character, he seems like a solid, upright guy. He's a good soldier, faithful, uh, you know, defender of the realm. That is the Republic of, of Venice. And, um, you know, he's well respected by the Duke of Venice. He's been entrusted with a lot of responsibility. He's married this young woman, Desdemona, whose father is opposed to that because Othello is a Moor. That is, um, he's North African. And so there's kind of some racist undertones in the play. I watched a debate from the Royal Shakespeare Company in London about whether or not this is a racist play, which is kind of interesting. You can check it out on YouTube if you are interested too. Um, but it seems like Othello is a respectable fellow. No rhyme intended. <laughs> he's an upright guy um, and he commands respect. He seems like he's making good decisions, you know, prudential, just decisions for the good of his people. He's fought valiantly, etc., etc. Yet Iago, who really, if you want to look at it this way, he kind of is the real protagonist of the play. He's, we're kind of like seeing everything through his point of view. We're the camera follows him. <laughs> you know, not, not exactly Othello. Um, and Iago, he has a real grievance against Othello because he was passed over for a promotion, which he hoped to get. And he hates the man. And we're starting to see, I'm just now starting Act 3, we're starting to see how, how Iago, in cold blood, behind the scenes, is kind of pulling strings and manipulating things to put people in compromising situations um, so that, you know, one by one the dominoes fall, if you will, and he will get what it is that he wants. And he's kind of using people just as the means to his chosen end. So I'm starting to get a sense of why that author might have said that Iago is Shakespeare's greatest villain. I'm not convinced yet, I have to say, but I haven't finished the play yet, so next week I'll be able to give you <laughs> my final verdict on Iago. Uh, yeah, and that's about it, except just an invitation. If anyone out there listening to this podcast uh, is a Shakespeare fan, if you're reading along as part of this project, maybe some of you are, I don't know, um, or if you have any interest, I would really welcome it if you just want to send me your comments or, you know, you can always send a voice message and we can talk about these plays. Um, yeah, so just an invitation. You can go online. Shakespeare 2020 is the name of the project. You can see the schedule if you want to read along. All the plays are available for free online through the Folger Digital Shakespeare Library. You can also get the complete works on Kindle for like 99 cents, 
or something, which is what I have. I also went out and bought the complete works <laughs> in paper, you know, pay a real physical book. Unfortunately, that was a mistake because the complete works weigh like 20 pounds. And when I came home um, in a big rush at the beginning of Corona Tide, I decided that that was just weight that I didn't need in my life. And so I had left that back in Menlo Park and just brought my Kindle. So I've been reading it all on Kindle and you could, you could join in too for 99 cents uh, or even no cents if you just use your web browser. So just an invitation. And I think I mentioned this two weeks ago too, but there's also right now uh, as a, a good fruit of the ongoing digital, well, uh, uh, worldwide, you know, global pandemic and our <clears throat> almost universal recourse to digital means to interact with each other. The good fruit of that, there's a, a company of both professional and amateur actors who are putting on all of Shakespeare's plays through online means on YouTube. It's called The Show Must Go Online, and I really recommend it. You can check them out. They're doing one play a week, Wednesday nights, I think. I've never yet watched one live, but you can go back and watch them all in recordings, and they're just excellent. They're just good for, if you just want something to watch, and you're sick of Netflix, check out The Show Must Go Online. And it'll be a good way to, I don't know if they have Othello, I don't, know, I don't think they've done that one yet, but you could always go on and watch those too. So all that to say, I certainly welcome audience participation. Now, in the last few minutes of the podcast, I want to talk to you a little bit about today's feast day. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? Well, a saint means one who is holy. Today is the feast of Saint Isidore the Farmer, San Isidro Labrador, Isidore the Laborer, but we popularly call him Isidore the Farmer. He's one of those great Spanish saints of the 16th century. Well, actually, no. He lived at the turn of the first millennium, around uh, you know, 1050, 1100 AD, but all these saints were canonized together in the 1600s, I believe, uh, or early 1700s. Um, it's kind of the golden age, with, I think of it, of Spanish saints. Because you got Saint Ignatius of Loyola, Saint Francis Xavier, San Felipe Neri, Saint Teresa of Jesus, of course, Saint John of the Cross. He was canonized later, but he lived during that time. And Saint Isidore the Farmer. There's a tremendous devotion to him in Spain. And interestingly, here in the USA, we've had permission to celebrate his feast day, um, gosh, since 1930s or 40s, I think. And uh, I'm not exactly sure why. I think it's because the United States at that time asked Rome for permission to celebrate the feast um, because most of America was farmers at the time. So, and he's, and he's, he's the patron of farmers and farm life and so on, agriculture. Uh, so I think that's the reason. Regardless, St. Isidore, unlike those other great Spanish saints, he was not initially kind of, the celebration of his feast was not given to the whole church. It was a Spanish phenomenon, which came to the USA. Right now, excuse me, 
having a little allergies out here. Um, right now, though, I do believe the whole church celebrates his feast day. The date is a little bit confusing. Um, in fact, when I watched my online mass this morning, I didn't realize it was his feast day. It took me by surprise. And when I went to do this research, I found about four different feast days for St. Isidore the Farmer. He's been moved around the calendar a lot. So one was like May 10th, one was March 22nd, one was October 25th. But today, May 15th, is actually the day when he died. And the modern liturgical calendar, as far as possible, this has always been the practice, but it was less strict, I think, in the past. Right now, really as far as possible, we try to keep the feasts of saints to the actual day when they died. Their eternal birthday, their birth into eternal life, the better life to come. And so today, 850 years ago, can you believe it? St. Isidore the farmer died. He lived in the region of Madrid. Um, he was born to very poor but very devout parents. And when he was a young man, he entered into the service of a wealthy landowner named Don Juan. I forget his last name, but he was a wealthy, um, what do you call them? Um, Baron? The ones who kind of own like the landed gentry, if you will, of, of Spain during that period. So he entered into the service of this Don Juan, and St. Isidore really distinguished himself, both for being a hard worker and for his piety. Every morning, he would stop and hear Mass at one of the churches in the city on his way to the fields. Um, there's a story that's told about him, uh, related by the earliest biography, really hagiography, of his life. It's in a codex called the Codice de Juan el Diácono, I think, the Codex of John the Deacon, which you can find online, as I did this morning, in the uh, Cathedral Museum of Madrid. You can find it, but no one's transcribed it. It's just scans of the pages, <laughs> and they're written in this impossible to decipher medieval script. Like I, you know, and it, it's Latin or maybe old Spanish, um, but you just can't decipher the <laughs> handwriting, the calligraphy. At least I can't. I need to have some classes in how to decrypt old texts. So that was kind of a dead end. There's a legend told about St. Isidore, which I, I found in some secondary sources anyway, um, where he was on his way to the fields one day, and some other farmhands, who presumably were jealous of him because of his well-deserved, good reputation, they spread a vicious rumor, and it got back to the master. And they said that Isidore was always late getting to the fields, and it's because he would always stop for mass, and he would never get there on time. And so the master went out the next day, early, to watch. And he saw St. Isidore there in the fields, but St. Isidore was praying, and walking next to him, on either side, were two angels who were plowing the fields. <laughs> and so, St. Isidore, although he was wrapped in, in prayer, or kind of ecstasy it sounds like, the angels were there making sure that twice as much work got done <laughs> as if Isidore himself had laid his hand to the plow. 
Another time, there's a story that's told where Saint Isidore was on his way to the mill with a, kind of, I guess, a bag of grain to be milled into flour. And um, I guess he saw some birds along the way, some hungry birds. And he was so moved with compassion for the birds. Those of you who have bird feeders in your yards will like this. <laughs> he saw the hungry birds and he poured out half his bag there on the ground so they would have something to eat. And the other workers ridiculed him and said, how stupid, that's gonna come out of your paycheck, you know? Well, when he got to the mill, poured out his bag, and there was twice as much wheat or grain that came out as all the other men's bags. And so he poured out half of his bag and he received twice as much back in this miraculous gift from the Lord, which is really telling, you know. And whatever stock we put in these medieval tales of miracles, personally, I, I think we should give them the benefit of the doubt just because we live in a very skeptical age. And skepticism is our, our reflex and we're kind of hardened in our cynicism. But there are parts of the world, even today, where miracles are regarded as an everyday occurrence, you know? And I don't think that speaks to their credulity. I think it speaks to our extreme and radical skepticism, which has never before been seen anywhere in, in human history. No other society has ever existed like, like ours in the modern Western world, where we are so inoculated, if you will, against the supernatural that we have a reflexive response of disbelief. So I think this is just my personal opinion. It's not the teaching of the church or anything. I just think we should kind of try to rebel against that um, and not be, not be, what's the word, credulous, um, not be naively quick to believe anything we hear, but you know, with these ancient legends of the saints that our forefathers in the faith have passed down to us, that they treasured, that were recorded with care by, you know, these figures like John the Deacon, Blessed John in Madrid, shortly after St. Isidore lived, I think we should regard these with respect and um, at least keep an open mind. Anyway, just a personal opinion. What I think these miracles can teach us, though, regardless of what uh, veracity we ascribe to them in themselves, is the truth of our Lord's promise, where he says to St. Peter and the, and the apostles, um, who, you know, Peter is kind of calling him out and saying, hey, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus makes him this promise where he says, to those who've given up house or lands or family or wives or anything to follow me for the kingdom of God, uh, a hundredfold will be given back to him and in the life to come, eternal life. And so th this is the Lord's promise, and, and a hundredfold is symbolic language to mean that if you, if you give up anything for the kingdom of God, you will receive back immeasurably more than you have sacrificed. Now, will that always be in the form of material gains here and now? Will the Lord always, you know, give us a kind of a miraculous replenishment of our bags of wheat, so to speak? No, that's not what he's promising. And we should know that going in. But what he is promising is nonetheless real. He's promising 
in effect, that all the desires of our hearts will be fulfilled and will be fulfilled in abundance. He's not just promising enough. He's promising a hundredfold. And so this is, this is the majesty of the Lord's promise to those who follow Him with an open heart, with generosity, who are not holding anything back from Him. You know, St. Isidore is a great model of that. And these miracles of his life with the wheat and with the angels helping him plow his fields, um, they reveal to us that the Lord does take care of us. Even in our, our smallest necessities, He's mindful of them. As Jesus tells in the parable about the sparrow, not a sparrow falls from the sky without the Father knowing about it. And behold, you are worth more than many sparrows. So do you think there's anything in your life that God doesn't know about? No. And is there anything in your life that you think He doesn't care about? Certainly not. Hold on a sec. Oh my gosh. What is it with people here in Roseburg and their humongous trucks? I don't, I don't know. Anyway. Oh. Small penances. That's all I have to say. Uh, yeah, so St. Isidore the farmer, patron of all farmers and really all those who work. And in that way, he's a, a predecessor, if you will, in spirit, of St. Jose Maria Escrivá, another great Spanish saint, very close to our own times. He lived in the 20th century. He died in the 1980s, maybe? Uh, maybe earlier. I'm not exactly sure of his dates. But he's the founder of the modern movement known as Opus Dei, which means the work of God. And St. Jose Maria, one of the major pillars of his teaching, is for those of us who live in the world, our work is not something extra. You know what I mean? Our work is actually a major part of our sanctification. And God wills, he, he positively wills our work as part of our own salvation, by which we're meant to become saints. And our work is to be transformed from within by our will, and especially by God's grace. <laughs> Let me make that clear. His grace goes before us. It enables this. But it's to be transformed from within into one complete and endless act of love. And therefore our work becomes part of the means by which God is making us saints, making us like unto himself. So Saint Isidore teaches that, Saint Jose Maria teaches that, our blessed Lord teaches that, and the stories of Saint Isidore especially that we remember today as we commemorate him, they illustrate how that's possible and what it looks like. What it looks like to live a life devoted to your work, but devoted to the Lord first, but with no opposition between the two. I love that image of St. Isidore praying in the field while the angels on either side of him plow out the wheat. And it reminds me of this story I have probably told on the podcast before. It's from one summer assignment when I was in a parish with a priest who I dearly love and respect as a spiritual father. When I got there though, because of my own woundedness, I 
was having trouble receiving his fatherhood. You know what I mean? His attempts to be a mentor and to be a teacher to me. I was resistant. And one day after Mass, I was praying. And I was doing some work. I was cleaning up after the Mass. And I forget what else. Maybe setting up for the next one. I don't know. But I wanted to stop and pray and give thanks to God for the Holy Communion that I had just received and just meditate for a minute. So we had a side altar in kind of a side chapel and I was walking by it in between errands. I paused and knelt down to pray and it felt like within seconds the priest was there and he said, what are you doing? Get up. You have work to do. You can pray after the work is done. And at that time, I was madder than you can believe. I, mean, I was thinking, who is this priest? Who does he think he is? Does he think he's more important than God? I mean, what does he think? I'm trying to become a saint here. Hello. And you're telling me to make my first priority, you know, washing out the wine cruets from Mass before going to my prayer? Are you kidding me? Now, looking back, uh, I can see that his teaching... He was teaching me precisely how to become a saint. Becoming a saint isn't something we do in our spare time in between jobs. It has to do with fidelity to our everyday, ho-hum, mundane tasks, like doing the dishes, cleaning up, whatever, whatever your work consists of, whether it's menial or servile, manual labor, professional labor, whatever, it doesn't matter. You can do it with love. And if you invite the Lord into it with you and look for where He is in your work every day, look for what He's doing in you, with you, and through you, and through your co-workers, you'll be surprised what you find. And you'll begin to realize the Lord wants to be involved intimately in every corner of your life, in every moment, in every act. He's there, and He just wants you to be fully there, fully present, both to that act and to Him. And I think that's what sanctity, true sanctity, consists in. And St. Isidore the Farmer is just a really great example of that. Now, friends, I think I kept it under an hour tonight. I'll find out when I get home and edit this thing. But uh, I am going to go back to the house, post this podcast, and take an early night. Um, I apologize for my shortness of breath on this podcast. I'm out walking, and um, I've had just terrible allergies this week, and it's given me some difficulty breathing, just shortness of breath. Um, it's because I have asthma. When I get bad allergies, it gets hard to breathe. So don't worry. Don't think I have the coronavirus, but uh, just a, another little cross to bear on the way to Calvary. Friends, may God bless you. May he protect you from all evil this week and always. May he bring you to everlasting life. And may we continue to be more and more aware of him at every moment of our lives. From now until we contemplate his face forever in glory unto the ages of ages. Amen.